0: You may be seated. Turn your Bible to John chapter 9, the ninth chapter of John. As you turn there, I was thinking as I studied this passage this week and also just talking to a couple of different people that I know are going through some difficult times, I was thinking about how... Um, how important it is for us to have a a strong foundation of truth in our lives, namely uh, a foundation of of God and of Christ and of the Word of God. And I, I kind of thought about going fishing with my, with my dad when I was younger, and uh, there are times we would go and we'd find a good spot and. This is back in the olden days before we used a lot of trolling motor, but we would drop an anchor down, and we, we found a good fishing spot, dropped the anchor down, why? To keep the boat there, right? So that when the wind blew, it wouldn't push us away from our good fishing spot. And so that anchor holds you when other things are trying to move you side to side and push you around. And I think it's so important for all of us to have an anchor in the Word of God, because when the storms of life come and blow in our, in our lives, we sometimes can be easily knocked over or tossed around. And I don't know how people make it apart from a foundation on God's Word and on the truth of Christ. And I know that we, we, we take that very seriously. And that's one reason why uh, we want to study the Word systematically as we go through the book of John, that we might have a, a well-rounded Understanding of what God wants us to know. As we come to John 9, I was looking at some things about the miracles of Jesus because today we're going to see one of his miracles. And noticing that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those other three Gospels, oftentimes when you see Jesus do miracles, those writers would emphasize uh, the compassion of Jesus. It would say He Jesus looked on them, and saw compassion, and, and healed them. And It's a little different in those Gospels than in John, because in John, the Gospels seek not to show necessarily the compassion of Christ, although they do show the compassion of Christ. But in John, it really seeks to show in his miracles the glory of God and the power of Christ. So these miracles and the miracle we're going to see today is meant to show the glory of God and the power of Christ. So... If you're in John 9, signify you're ready to listen by saying word. We better try that again. Say word. word. Yeah, thank you. Verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay out of the spittle, And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed, and he came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him, but He said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, where is he? And he said, I know not. We'll stop there this morning. we'll study verses 1 through 12. And I want to give you three truths from this passage that I found related to the glory of God. The first one, I want you to notice that suffering, there is a suffering for the glory of God. So in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples are walking and they walk by this blind man. And first of all, I just first think about what this man's life must have been like. We're going to know and we're going to see more as we go to next week's passage that he was an adult man, and we know from what they said here that he sat there and begged, and can you just imagine, he was blind from birth, right? Can you imagine growing up and never seeing? That's kind of crazy, right? We, we take that for granted because we see things every day. But it, so I'm sure there's some in here that have had issues maybe with eyesight in the past, and that can, be a, that, can hurt, that can be a very detriment to your health to see things. And this man lived his life never seeing the, the sky, never seeing his father and mother, never seeing so many different things. And it appears to me that his parents must have every day said, hey, take this bucket and go sit and beg for money so that you might have food to eat. It appeared that he was just a poor, blind beggar, an outcast. And so as they walk by this blind man, verse 2, the disciples see him and they say, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned to cause this man to be blind? The first thing I notice about this, by the way, is are the disciples showing compassion or are they showing something else? The first thing I notice is it seems to me like they're more interested in the theology behind his blindness than actually trying to help the guy. And that's something that just stuck out to me as I, as I read this. But here they assume, by the question in verse two, verse 2, they assume that either he or his parents had a specific sin that caused him to be born blind. My first thought on that was, if he was born blind, then how could he have sinned to cause that blindness? I did some research on it, and many Jews of Jesus' day um, had some very strange beliefs, like that that there are certain sins that babies could commit in the womb, or some of the Jews believe that maybe uh, maybe he lived a previous life of some kind, all these different things that may have went into some of that thinking, but we see later they 're going to talk here about his parents, and again, did his parents have some sin that caused him to be born blind? Is that a biblical teaching well? I found a couple things. Exodus Exodus 20 and 5 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And then I thought of a couple other examples. You remember David and Bathsheba had the affair, had a child, and what happened to that child? Child died as a result of their sin. How about Moses had a sister named Miriam. Miriam rejected Moses' or rebelled against Moses' leadership and God struck her with leprosy. So there are biblical accounts of people who, because of sin, were judged or disciplined or punished because of that individual sin. So God may allow ordain suffering as a result of sin. And that leads us to this guy. Is this guy blind? Was he born blind because of some sin in his life or some sin in his parents? And Jesus plainly says in verse 3, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. Now, is Jesus saying that those people are perfect? He's not saying they're sinless. We know everyone has sinned. All have sinned except for Christ. But he's saying those people did not sin that led to this blindness but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I had a, an uncle, my uncle Tommy, who was a great man and um, had cancer, a uh, type of rare throat cancer, and went through so much. I remember so many times we had to rush to the hospital. And I remember, and he, many people knew him in churches across the state and, and the country, really. And I remember one time going to Forest General Hospital in Hattiesburg, and they said that, you know, he was not going to make it. And I remember walking into the hospital, and just like, there's people everywhere. Like, what are these people doing? And it's just people that knew him came to pray, like this long line of people holding hands and praying. And, and he's a man that knew a lot of people and, and loved the Lord. And, and one time he was sick, and I remember my family telling me this story. He was sick, and he was in the hospital. And a man from the church, I think a deacon from the church, went to visit him. And the deacon began to tell him that you have this cancer because of some sin in your life. There's something you did that caused you to have this cancer. And my family told me that later, and I was like, what? He said, what? Um, What what is he doing? What's he thinking? I'm glad I wasn't there. I I would probably kick him out of the room. (laughs) While it is true that Ultimately, because of our sin, because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, that allowed sickness and death and pain to come into this world. While it's true that ultimately sin has led to all sickness, it is a false assumption that every affliction is the direct result of a particular sin. It's a false assumption that every affliction is the direct result of a particular sin. Exhibit A, Job. Right, Job. Y'all know the story of Job. Satan goes to God and says, "God, this man Job serves you because you protect him." And 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 God says, "Okay, um, you can do anything you want to. Basically, you can't take his life." And y'all know the story. Satan begins to take his his family, his kids, his servants, his his uh, livestock, which was his livelihood. And and Job lost everything basically, right? Except for his wife and. Then he has these three friends that come, and these three friends show up, and they're like, you must have done something to cause God to, to punish you this way. These three guys in Job sound like the guy that visited my uncle, right? You must have done something, and, and they don't, they try, they're trying to comfort him, but they're really not comforting him. These guys also sound kind of like the disciples in verse 2 to me. And then by the end of the story, you know the story of Job. Job learns a lesson. He learns to trust in the sovereignty of God, and, and God restores him back um, to his previous state, and even better. Job did not suffer because of sin he committed. Job suffered for the glory of God and to learn more about God. Let me give you exhibit B, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone did not deserve to suffer, it would be Christ, right? And yet the sinless one suffered greatly for us. So back to verse 3. Jesus makes it clear this guy's blindness is so that the works of God, the glory of God, can be made known. I'm spending most of my time on point one, by the way, this morning, so just keep that in mind. But I want you to understand something. And this means something to me because I'm, I'm, you know, there's a couple of people I'm thinking about right now that I know are going through very difficult times and, I want them to know this. They're not in this building, but I hope they hear it maybe. But this is why you and I need to be a part of a church that focuses on preaching the Bible and the whole Bible and through books and doesn't skip around and preaches it. Because there will come a day, When you and or your family goes through great suffering, right? If we live long enough, we're going to go through suffering. And as I said, we need an anchor for our souls when we go through those difficult times. I know someone this week that said, I think God punished me with sickness because of this thing I did. And this person's beating himself up over the thought of, man, God is really punishing me right now because I did this thing. And I don't know if God is disciplining them for that thing or not, but here's what I do know. That's something that's not for us to figure out. That's not something for us to know. Spending too much try, time Trying to decide if God is punishing you for one of your sins is not the answer. Here's the answer. If you have a sin or sins, and we all do, we need to live a life of repentance toward God. Turning from that sin, confessing it, asking God to remove it from us and help us. And then we need to remember this. Afflictions are meant to make us more dependent on God. Every affliction that comes your way, God intends to help to cause you to turn to him. To look to him, to depend on him, to trust him. To take your eyes off yourself and take your eyes off the temporary things of this world and turn your eyes to him. I've heard so many testimonies of people that say, you know, they didn't look up to God until they were flat on their back, right? Then they looked up. And again, I go back to our story, and I think, why would God cause or allow someone, why would God allow someone to be born blind? It doesn't make sense. Why would God allow things like this to happen? But here's a a truth you need to know and, and remind yourself of. We are not always going to know why things happen. Some things are beyond our understanding, right? The difficult things you go through or you're going through Sometimes are beyond your understanding. Corey Ten Boom, uh, you may know her from the book The Hiding Place. Um, She said, one day I had to surrender my if only to Jesus. I had to surrender my if only to Jesus. Have you ever said that? If only I had this. If only God would do this. And sometimes it's not for us to wonder about those things. It's for us to trust him. Isaiah fifty five nine for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Someone said the best way to answer this question of, of why God allows evil in this world is to ask yourself what good comes out of it. Why was this man born blind? That the works of God might appear might appear and Christ might cure him. Can you, or can we, come to this place where everything that happens to us, we can look at it with a an eternal lens and say, what good can come out of this? Can we look at things that way? Right, there, a job you want, you don't get it. A life change you do not expect. Right, unexpected obstacles, a cancer diagnosis. Whatever it might be, can you get to the place where you say, no matter what comes my way, God is good? Can you get to that place? Or are you at that place? heard the story of a man who, a pastor, he went to a hospital visit and he, he, he walked in and there was a dad, a man he knew well. And the dad said to the pastor, his friend. He said, uh, they, "The doctor said that the new baby we just had may not make it." And the man went on to tell the pastor, "He said, if if God will just let this baby live, I will praise Him every single day. I'll give him the rest of my. I'll surrender the rest of my life to God if He'll let this baby live." And the pastor, who's also again who's a friend of the guy, he said. What are you going to do if God doesn't let the baby live? See the point? Can we say, even in the most difficult times, God is still good? Things may not be good. Circumstances may not be good. But we need to have it settled in our hearts, Christians, that God is good. A Christian might say, praise God, he healed me. But a Christian knows that God is worthy of praise even if he doesn't heal me. A Christian knows that even if things don't make sense to me, I know they make sense to God. And we can, with Paul in Romans 8, remember that the sufferings of this present time do not compare with the glory that will be revealed to us. We have it settled in our hearts that God works all things together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And so I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but I know we all go through stuff. And if you're not now, you will be soon or at some point. But you can settle it even now and say, Lord, I'm settling this in my heart that no matter what happens, I'm going to trust you through it. Let me give you a second thing here in this text and there's not only a suffering for the glory of God there is a working for the glory of God Jesus said in verses 4 and 5 I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day the night cometh when no man can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world so here Jesus is talking in these verses about just working, doing the the job that he's been sent to do, the ministry he's been sent to do. And one thing we can say about Christ is that he was always about his father's business. Think about that. Jesus is obviously perfect son of God. But how many of you can think this week of some time that you wasted? Or how many of you can think of some words that you wasted? Or an encounter with someone where you could have encouraged them or been a light to them and you didn't? Imagine Jesus, not once did he waste a word or an encounter or a moment. He was about the work. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. I imagine that every one of us in this room can probably repent because we probably waste opportunities that God gives us. As I thought about verse 4, I was reminded of the illustration, and you've heard it before. When you look on a, a gravestone, a tombstone, you see the, the birth date, right? And then you see the, the death date. And in between, what's there? A little dash. I've heard this before. A little dash. And someone has said, you know, what, what counts is what you do with, with the dash. And that's a pretty good illustration for here because we, we don't know how many years or days we have left on this earth. But with the days God has given us, while it is day, he says, we should be about the work, the work that God, the the goals, the the missions, the ministry that God has called us to. J.C. Rowell on this verse said, Let us pray and read and keep our Sabbaths holy and hear God's word and do good in our generation. May we never forget that the night is at hand. Our time is very short. Our daylight will soon be gone. Opportunities once lost can never be retrieved. A second lease of life is granted to no one. Then let us resist procrastination as we resist the devil. Whatever our hand finds to do, let us do it with all our might. So working Christ and his disciples doing the work they did and our working for God is an urgent work. Right? We don't have time to waste. We can't get time back. We must take advantage of the dash that God has given us. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let me challenge you, church. I know that, again, this passage is speaking of Christ and the works he did. But as we try to be Christ-like and follow him, what are the works that Christ has called you to do is my application. To love, to pray, to give, to serve, to be an encourager. Whatever it might be for you, be about the Father's business. Be about what God has called you to do. There's not only the urgency of the work, but notice in verse 6 the means of the work. I don't know about you guys, but when I first read verse 6, I was like, this seems kind of strange. Jesus spit on the ground. And made clay from it and put it on the blind guy's eyes. Like, right. what's going on here? And I was reminded of John 2. Remember when Jesus turned the water to wine? Remember that story? Did Jesus put his hand down in the water and like stirred it around? Y'all remember that? Did he stick something in there? What did you remember what he did? He willed it to be. He just changed water to wine by his own will. And there are some miracles of Christ where he will just will it. There's some miracles of Christ where he uses means to accomplish things, like this mud, this clay. And there's nothing special. Some have tried to speculate there's there some healing properties in the dirt. I don't, I don't think that's true. But Jesus often healed people by touching. You know, he, he might touch and use a means. My application here is that in our lives, God uses means to accomplish his purpose. So let me give you an example. God uses His church to grow His kingdom. Right? There are all kinds of organizations and all types of ministries and things going on, but Christ died for the church, and He's using the church. Someone said the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. That's why we need to be a part of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church that we might be a part of the means which God uses to accomplish His purposes. And may God help us to do that more and more. Verse 7, Jesus so Jesus put the, the clay on His eyes and says, Go down here and wash in the pool. Giving this man something here to, to I guess, show his faith. And, and the, the man went. All we see in verse 7 is he went and he washed and he came back what? seeing he was healed can you imagine what he must have thought or felt like can you imagine the scene of not seeing for years and years and years and now you can see can't imagine what he must have felt like and that leads me to my third point there's a suffering for the glory of God there's a working for the glory of God and there is a testifying for the glory of God now, verses 8 through 12, he doesn't really testify about Christ. He doesn't really even know Jesus yet. I mean, at this point, he hasn't even seen Jesus because when he met him, he was still blind. But we're going to see next week, in the next part of the section, he's going to come to meet Christ and understand who Christ is and believe in Christ. But I do want you to notice in verse 11, they asked him, or verse 10, how were your eyes opened? And he said, and I like this phrase, a man called Jesus. How were your eyes open, sir? A man called Jesus. These people were curious, obviously. How can he see? A man called Jesus. My thoughts on these verses are this. If Jesus can heal this man's blindness, and if Jesus can take care of physical ailments and sicknesses and disease, then certainly he can take care of our spiritual needs, right? The one who opened blinded eyes can open blinded spiritual eyes. And that's what he has done through our salvation. Christ took our sin, took our place, took the wrath of God. Christ did all those things for us that we might see one day him as Savior and Lord. And so we don't say, you need to really check out um, my pastor, or you need to really check out my church, or you really need to check out our denomination, or you need to really check out this or that. What we need to say to people that ask us about our lives is a man called Jesus. The one called Jesus saved my soul. Because I don't know about you, I remember when I was lost as a young man and did not know God, living my own way, going my own way, not even really caring about sin or caring about the things of God. And one day God opened my eyes and I was like, wow, I'm a sinner and I've sinned against God. And that sin matters. And I remember turning to Christ and repenting and believing in Christ. And then, obviously I've lived an up and down life, not perfect by any means. But from that day on, I was given a taste for the things of God. And I wanted to know Him. I know many of you can have the similar testimony to that. But the one called Jesus changed your life. And if He's done a work in us, then my point here is, we need to be testifying for His glory to others. I've told you before that our goal should be as we leave the church, leave the building and go out, to influence our crowd for Christ. The people in your home, your workplace, the people you run into, influencing them for Christ, being being Christ-like in words, attitudes, and actions. That we might, not only in our congregation, but in our communities, help influence people toward Christ. Are we turning people toward the one called Jesus? Or are we turning people away from the one called Jesus? Every one of us in this room is in one of two categories today. You've either been healed of spiritual blindness and you've seen Christ for who He is or you remain spiritually blind. No desire for the things of God. No desire for who He is. And you need Him to come and open your eyes. That you might say, like this man would say, I was blind, but now I see. Which reminds me of a song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Finish it for me. was blind, but now I see. Let's pray.